Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Purpose at Work podcast. This is your host, Spencer Jacobson. And this episode is with Ellen Petrie Leance. And what an episode it is. I have really enjoyed getting to know Ellen. And she has such a diverse background. She's currently the chief people officer at LucidWorks in the Bay Area, which is a high tech company. She's also a successful author. She wrote The Happiness Hack. She's been an instructor at Stanford in leadership and mindset. She has been a successful executive and leadership coach for a long time, an advisor, investor, early employee at Apple, lots of experience in marketing. And so one of the things that I think is most special about Ellen is her ability to combine an understanding of science with wisdom traditions while also being grounded in today's world of work. She is by far one of the most integrated leaders in that way in terms of really understanding where we are going from a work perspective, from a humanity perspective, what drives happiness, and deeply understanding how ancient wisdom traditions impact this, as well as science. And so this is a fantastic episode that I'm sure you will enjoy. Okay, awesome. Well, Ellen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Spencer. It's really a pleasure to be here. So... You have a really diverse background, which I'm excited to hear about with being a digital pioneer at Apple in the early days, B2B enterprise experience with Google, starting your own ventures, being an author, neuroscientist, and now being the chief people officer at LucidWorks, also being an executive coach, instructor at Stanford. I'd love to hear how you wound up back in the corporate world, if you will, as a chief people officer with, with LucidWorks. Thanks for asking. It was so funny. The other day, someone asked me, they said, tell me about your career path. And I said, well, it's been a lot more path than career. And one of the things that's interesting for me, having watched sort of the arc of how our work lives have changed over the past decades is we focus so much more on the career and sort of it as the focal point rather than our experience and our abilities as sort of the more of the guiding light. It's, it's very interesting to hear you name those things because I could imagine for someone listening, you would hear those different labels or categories and think, oh my gosh, how do those things even fit together? And yet for the person who, who experienced them, me, they have simply been a continuum of one thing leading to another. So I guess that kind of sets up LucidWorks. You know, in my coaching work, I was introduced to LucidWorks about five and a half years ago. And it was actually funny. Through my work at Google, I, I showed up in certain searches as one of the world's leading authorities in enterprise search. And um, trust me, that that's a pretty – if I'm the, one of the world's leading authorities, I have some significant concerns. <laughs> it's not true. But – we connected over that, and I was right up front saying, hey, this was more of a, of a search thing than it was an actual fact. I, 
my name had appeared on a blog at Google, and I think the SEO sort of pushed me up higher than my, my knowledge could have ever pushed me up. But I really liked this person who was then heading product. His name was Will, Will Hayes. And Will and I connected, and it was really clear that although my technical fit was not going to be the thing that they were looking for at the time, that ideologically, Will and I thought very much alike. We had a, a really deep belief in the ability to create different types of companies than, than were normally available and to have work be a canvas for people really evolving to a higher level of excellence than many workplaces elicited. Will and I did a little bit of work together about five years ago when he became the CEO of LucidWorks. Yet it was a company that had work to do in terms of product and was you know, growing in different ways. And although we didn't stay closely connected, Will was fantastic about making sure he and I got together a couple of times a year to just catch up on how the company was doing and so forth. And meanwhile, my teaching at Stanford and a couple of other things I was working on, the coaching and the writing, were really deeply, deeply satisfying to me. And at Stanford, I taught courses in leadership and in the neuroscience of creativity and innovation as it applies to product design. And then also in the future of organizations and organizational dynamics. And I found that the, the topic that I really loved the most was centered around how can people be their best selves through work, not just at work, but through work. So what is the dimension that work can bring to our lives that allows us to find a very deep level of intentionality and fulfillment that makes other things in our lives better too, you know, helps us really become the best selves that I know all of us are sort of aching to be. About uh, about nine months ago, Will reached out and said, hey, you know, it's time for us to have one of our catch-ups. And I said, yeah, thanks for, thanks for asking. It sure is. And he said, this time I want two hours. And I knew at that point something was happening. <laughs> the reason I joined, yeah, I just, I was like, ah, and it's one of those funny moments, Spencer. I'm sure everybody out there has felt it. It's sort of like you knew something all along. You know, I had this sort of funny five-year relationship with this company and this, this leader. And yet I think it was, it had, did feel like the holding pattern, that there was a potentiality that was sort of waiting there. But, but here's why I made the decision in the teaching, in the coaching, even in the writing, there were all of these ideas and all of these sort of principles that I was deeply committed to and, and felt so lucky to be able to, you know, present or offer to the world and speak about and, you know, share in different ways. And in the art of my class at Stanford, of course, I could see that, you know, people made changes based on these ideas. They were like, oh, now, you know, I see a new way. And I thought, that's great, but it's kind of a, you know, I'm kind of making an air gesture here. It's kind of a shallow layer. What would happen with a really deep change, with a, a true transformative change applied over time to a company and a group of people that begins with psychological safety, you know, so people are both cognitively and emotionally free to, to be more creative, to take more risks, to connect more deeply, all of these things. You know, modeling a sense of real intentionality and presence in the workforce and really working to use our interactions with each other to become better versions of ourselves, to create better interactive patterns and, and stronger interpersonal connections and dynamics. And so I, I joined LucyWorks, so I thought, wow, this is really a fantastic laboratory to really try and see what is possible when we work together in these ways. And I've been with, I've been at the company for eight months now, many very exciting things going on, but the company itself with the people, 
we've uh, really gathered around core values and ways of working together. And we're seeing quite vividly that these things do make a difference, that it works, and that people can step up to a higher level, not only as individuals, but as an organization, as a, as a community, when they are committed to using work as a, as a vehicle, as a canvas for growth. It's very satisfying. Absolutely. Ellen, where did this passion and knowledge of human potential and helping people be their best selves through work, where did this start for you? I I know you have a, a bit of a neuroscience background. Have you always just been about personal growth and, and human potential, or, or was there a, a genesis point of that for you? Yeah, it's sort of yes and yes, Spencer. So I think everybody out there will know we accept some compromises to live whatever adult life we're living. And even, you know, the, the things you could say that about brain development that, that maybe, you know, play into that. But mostly there's a lot of social conditioning and social norming where in order to reach different chapters in our life and to have different experiences, we have to leave other experiences behind. And this is both a biological and more of a, you know, interpersonal or more of a, of a what would I say, more of a subjective sort of experience. I think everybody out there, you know, probably feels, at, at least at times, really, like, this is really what it's like? Because inside, we sort of, are you laughing? Yeah. Is this it? <laughs> What's that? I said, is this it? Is yeah, this, this it? is it. Like, wait, all those things I did to get here, and this is here, you know, haven't we all been there at some point in our lives? And for some reason, I don't know what the reason is, who knows, you know, we, we can't go back and dissect our psychology that much, but I don't know, for some reason, I felt like that, I always believed that the purpose of life was to sort of expand our potential, not to reduce it. And over the years, I've spoken to so many people who feel their potential has been reduced in the workplace rather than expanded or reduced in the, con- the, the sort of confines of, you know, entering adult life rather than expanded. And, you know, sometimes you have to take a little break from expansion. There are times you've got to push down the roots and not necessarily be doing all this, you know, branching, branching, branching. But I remember really feeling shocked in a couple of workplaces at how much people were willing to tolerate in order to stay in their jobs. Now, mind you, we're not talking about Apple here. I'll get back to that in a minute. And in fact, a lot of there's a research project I did at Stanford that was about what do you fake and what do you hide in order to keep your job? And this was, you know, these were executives who were participating in this. The responses were amazing. And the amount of diminishment that people were willing to endure or accept in order to play by the rules of their workplace. I had to look at it because I looked at people in the room who were working at, you know, household big companies. And I thought, gosh, you know, what is the, the net present value of every company in this world that these people are involved in? And I, I thought to myself, my gosh, a business and people are paying a huge tax just to stay in these small little boxes that we're told it's you know, supposed to be like this, that this at work. How do we get out of those boxes? So that's sort of one answer is, again, I always felt like 
the purpose of life was to sort of expand and not to contract. And so for some reason, when I got into these situations that I didn't feel I was expanding, I, I well, first of all, my younger years, I thought there was something wrong with me. So that's what we do in our younger years. Not so the, the workplace was right. I was wrong. What was I doing wrong? Do you kind of know what I mean? <laughs> we tend yeah. to internalize it rather than think it's more of a, you know, sort of a systemic problem. But for yeah. some reason, I have always fought for that expansion. And I won't say that's always served me well in the short term, but it seems to have brought me a lot of satisfaction in the long term. And then the other answer I have to be pretty, you know, direct, it's pretty obvious. I worked at Early Apple. There were some very interesting people there. And they set different examples of what was possible than, you know, the prevailing wisdom of many companies allows to allows people to sort of activate and engage with. And there was this wonderful feeling of being on this wide and sometimes sort of impossible ride. But knowing that, you know, if you got as far as you could on that ride, if you gave as much as you could on that ride, that where you would get would be better than you could have gotten any other way. And, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about leadership at Apple at that time and some of the negatives associated with it. And the conversation that doesn't come up really, you know, we see that how the company benefited. We don't necessarily see how individuals benefited. But even looking across the Apple community that I hold so dear today, you know, 35 years later, I see how all of these people, whether they stayed at Apple for a long time or a short time, they're all still kind of, you know, sort of building and creating and chasing something that's about their true potential and their true gift in, in really amazing ways. So I think I had both a theoretical example that was very internal and then a very specific example that was external that showed me, aha, it can be this way. Mm. You're saying a number of things that are really resonating with me. I think I have a very similar internal experience, even early in my career, where something felt fundamentally wrong when I was at different workplaces because I, I just felt so limited. And I looked around and I just said, is nobody else feeling this, right? Is nobody, is this not making everybody else crazy? And it wasn't that there was no, you know, evil person at the top trying to create it that way. But I said, there's, this is just not going to work for me <laughs> for very long. Wow. And, and, you know, I was, I was blessed to come to, you know, let's say the work of coaching and the work of human development and a lot of consciousness expanding practices early in my in my 20s, because they did allow me to question the nature of what I was experiencing and decide that I didn't need to, or that I wouldn't do that anymore. And then actually, in some ways, to dedicate my life to supporting others in escaping from those boxes, it, it also makes me think of, there's this conversation about job one and job two, that people have in organizations. So job one being their job that they get paid for. And then job two being what you were talking about of the limit, hiding all of the parts of themselves or wow. withholding all the parts of themselves. And that they've done studies that humans behave as, as if they're, they're doing both of those jobs simultaneously all the time. Wow. So this is a really interesting concept. And first of all, I love everything you said. And I, it's always thrilling to me 
to hear someone who is early in her or his career have this clarity of, wait a minute, no, there's something more here and it's worth working for. So that, that's super neat to hear, Spencer. So you are right that, you know, this job too, this, this, anytime we are in a role and away from our authentic selves and behaving in an as if way, like I'm going to act as if I know what I'm doing, or I'm going to act as if I think this is a good idea, or as if I actually like the people that I'm with. We are literally, literally paying a a tax, an energy tax on uh, our lived experience. And one of the things that the brain does best, and in fact, it's a primary function of the, the human brain, is to modulate moderate and conserve energy you know I, I often say that the brain is an ancient technology that we use to navigate our everyday life in the modern world so the brain is using energy to be in that as if role that job too as you called it I, I love hearing it that way and the, even the spending of the energy to try to show up as something else you are to be in that role or that costume of this is what an employee at this company needs to do or be or act like. The brain is, is, that's a stressful situation for the brain. And it's creating this sort of, there are different types of stress that that the brain has is sort of that epic, you know, game, boom, fight or flight response that, you know, the amygdala hijack that causes us to sort of, you know, cut off rational thought for a moment and our body gets pins and needles, you know, all the things. But then there's this other sort of slow burn sort of carried stress that really it, it accrues over time in really painful and, and unhappy ways and, and, and unhealthy ways. And one of the things that we have to know about that is that we don't understand all of the ways that bodies signal to each other, people signal to each other, you know, in ways that they're unconscious, subconscious, what is going on. But we do know that groupthink sets in. And the more people act like that, the more other people act like that. The more other people act like that, the more everybody starts acting like that. It becomes almost like a contagion in organizations. And I actually feel really sad thinking about it because, first of all, think of these are all of these are people who, in their hearts, you know, when they commute into work in the morning or go home to their the people they love at night or to whatever it is that they do at night. They're all thinking that call, that epic call that opens the heroic journey. And that's, I'm meant for more than this. Mm. I'm meant for more than this. And yet the situation around them and the social pressure around them tells them, keep it quiet, dumb down, don't take a risk. It's kind of heartbreaking, actually. Uh, Yeah, I'm getting the chills as you say that because um, I feel really passionately that every human being... Right, every human being, at least if they're in the privileged position of not necessarily worrying about where their next meal will come from or or things like that, is capable of going on a hero's journey, right? And we're all, generally speaking, we're the protagonist of our own story. And that especially today, people, when they're at work, they, as, they're, as you're saying, they know that there's something more possible for them. And either their company is in the way of that or the company is actively facilitating it. And I'd say the vast majority of the human work experience right now is people either consciously or unconsciously viewing their boss or their, their company as 
inhibiting their ability to right. express themselves and be who they really the want obstacle. to be. obstacle. Very insightful. You're yeah. right. The obstacle. And in some ways, it's how the companies, sometimes companies even position themselves this way because companies will position themselves as the hero of the story, right? They'll say, hey, we're going to change the world. Come join us and it'll be great for you too. And that works, I think, as long as the funding is coming in and the company is growing and, and the accolades are there and people are hitting their sales quotas. But as soon as it, because people will be willing to subvert their authentic selves for that kind of feeling of winning in some ways. But I think that this is where a lot of the challenges are really coming for companies today in retaining people and continuing to build great culture is that as soon as hiccups start, if you're positioned as the hero, there's not, there's not room for any other heroes, right? And so people will begin to abandon the experience. And I, Interesting. I think the opportunity that companies have now is to actually position themselves as the guides for human beings to become who they're meant to be. And in some ways, when I say the, the opportunity for the companies to get out of the way and to just make it about the employees. Oh, I love it. And so, so what you cracked open there is so interesting, Spencer, because, you know, we, I believe others' opinions may differ, but I believe there is less certainty in this time that you know, we're living in than there was when I started my career 35 years ago. I had a pretty good sense, and this might be painful for some in your audience to hear, but I, I had a pretty good sense and a, a real belief that if I worked hard, was a good person, you know, really, you know, sort of made a commitment, I would do okay. I would be fine. And speaking with a lot of people who are entering their careers or their early careers today, I don't get that consistent belief the way that I held it all those years ago. It makes me sad, actually. However, because of that, there's probably a psychological tendency to outsource the heroic arc to the company rather than to own it yourself. You almost put mm. the company into the parent position that'll take care of you rather than the sort of vehicle that you will ride to your own to your own art. Does that make any sense? So you're saying that that's how people are viewing it now? I think so. Like, well, I don't know that I'm, I'm not in a position to say that definitively. It's a hunch. But based on what you said, you said the company's positioning themselves as the hero. We're, gonna, we're changing the world. Look at us. We're the next blank, whatever. And so people come and they say, okay, I can borrow a journey subconsciously. They're saying, I right. can borrow my heroic journey from them. I can outsource my heroic journey to them. And so they show up and wait for that heroic journey to happen. Well, that sounds just so painful to me. And so what I liked about the way you said it is, how can we make them the guide or even the campus for our own heroic journey? And the heroic journey that we follow doesn't necessarily mean, you know, I'm going to change the world with this product or this idea or something else. It might be something like, let's say you're, a, I'll, I'll make something up. Let's say you're a, you're a content developer. I'm going to use my gift of writing and communication to help people like their jobs more and to bring them more understanding of something that matters to them. 
or you're a coder, I'm going to build something that brings people a really satisfying user experience, then your, your, your prize, the thing that you bring back from the heroic journey, is knowing that you've done you know, one of the three things that's really the only thing that makes humans satisfied. And that's one, you know, just what is connecting with other people, creating great relationships and feeling a sense of belonging. So, you know, relationships. Two, contribution, making a generous and worthy offering of our own talent, our intrinsic light to the world. And three, growth, learning and and, and developing new skills and learn and you know mastering new levels of risk in the hero's journey or the heroic journey model, crossing new thresholds, you know, having new ventures, new challenges, relationships, contributions, and growth. If we look to our work as a place where we do that on our own journey, rather than the the thing that will journey for us, we have a very different relationship with the work that we do. Mm. I resonate deeply with everything that, that you're saying. Relationships, contribution, and growth, especially. Ellen, I'm, I'm curious about what you think is the biggest impediment to this shift happening in the workplace or the biggest impediment to people being able to be their best selves through work and that role the big, I suppose the biggest impediment to changing this dynamic of people needing to assume masks and roles in order to fit in? Well, I guess I would say there are few that come to mind. The first one is sort of social norming, and we humans are social beings. And so when we look around and we see things that aren't going well, we think, well, it's okay for everybody else. What's wrong with me that it's not okay for me? So, you know, that I think is, is one thing. Like when you feel, you know, on your eighth week in the job or six months into or whatever, that you're seeing more and more people sort of dumb themselves down to stay in their job, you feel like that's what you have to do too. It's the social norm. I think there are other issues too, Spencer, and they do get into just a lot of the ambient uncertainty and stress that we that we all are exposed to simply, you know, living life as it is today. We all know that there are looming issues that if we think about them, we can think of outcomes that are not the outcomes that we would have wished for. And so there's a little bit of being overwhelmed, I think, that goes on. And then I probably have to also add, I, I do think that our increasing reliance on screen-based technologies, on looking to our screens for answers or for entertainment or for meaning that, you know, we formally, and by formally, I mean for the last, you know, fill in the blanks, 100,000 years, <laughs> have gotten from things like the, the world around us or, you know, interaction with others or our own personal, you know, sort of forward-looking journeys of what, what we're here to do. These, the, the, the screen-based technologies are really changing our brains. There's a, a very common phrase in neuroscience. Probably most people out there have heard it. It goes like this. Your brain will do more of whatever it's doing right now. And the brain is a survival machine at the end of the day. And it's going to look at everything you've done so far and say, wow, it's worked. She or he is safe and alive. Right. Have them keep doing more of whatever they've been doing. And this is how habits form and why habits are hard to break and how we all get into these routines going, gosh, I just did this for, 
for two hours. What was I thinking? I don't even like doing it. But you were like, why did I even do it? Or, you know, other patterns like that. Just the brain sort of running the old routines. And I often say that nothing that, I, that I've heard anybody call up, nothing I can think of or I've heard anybody else think of, has changed our brains and thus our, thus our lived experience with the, at the velocity, scale, or uniformity of mobile, primarily mobile technologies. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you through an iPhone right now. It is, you know, picking it up and looking at it because I'm, I'm kind of thinking about what a, an incredible marvel it is that you and I can have this conversation, you know, without, across distance and that, you know, it, it, it's just like it facilitates so much. You know, I think about getting around in a new city and I'm able to do it better than I would be able to do without this, this phone and my email and, you know, access to my family, FaceTime my, you know, people I love, whatever it is. So many things. And each of those experiences gives my brain a very specific, gives anyone's brain a very specific set of, you know, rewards and sort of, sort of activate these sort of motivation and reward loops. And then they're the other side of this, these things that might draw me in for 40 minutes that I, you know, or 40 minutes of precious time that I give to these apps or something else that really aren't, when I think about it, aligned with my meaning. They're not aligned with my relationships, my contribution, or my growth. They're simply entertainment or distraction, probably a better word, in ways that don't serve who I wish to be. And yet I see how those things get in charge of us. And so the practice of getting in charge of our mobile technology and how we use it actually is a really important way to also feel a sense of more autonomy and more mastery in other decisions we make in our lives. Mm. When the human, when we get to a point in our lives, or even in a day or even in an hour, where we're up against an obstacle, having a distraction that's too available and too easy really reduces our ability to solve the problem. Mm. So in my opinion, the funny thing is I heard a really brilliant writer say this, that many of our technologies are focused on removing any friction between want and have. And yet friction is the place where we solve problems. We say, I want a better way. You know, a little bit of friction, a little bit of resistance is like a mini hero's journey right there. That's yes. a threshold. How are you going to cross? So I would say, you know, to sort of sum that up, I think there's sort of a, a, a perfect storm of things that are creating those obstacles or those impediments. Some of them are, you know, in our, you know, our, the sense of self, that sort of vastness that we are as, as humans coming into these areas that feel limited and learning to tolerate that. That's an issue. The other one is the more systemic and sort of large scale, the global pressures and concerns that everyone on this planet is a participant in and, are, and, are, uh, and is affected by. You know, we're all in the soup together of many of the problems we're facing right now as a, as a, as a planet of all species on it. And then the third one is the fact that mobile, that, that these sort of screen technologies and on-demand technology, and I'm the last thing in the world from a Luddite, trust me, I've been in this industry for years. <laughs> I've also been around long enough to see the changes, you know, and to see the price we have paid for the benefits that they've brought us. I think a lot about that price, Spencer. But yeah. um, the ease of getting out of hard situations and distracting ourselves away from it isn't really serving us as problem solvers right now. Yeah, 
I, I think when I, when I was listening, I was thinking about the power of our attention, right? And that when these, and I, I even as a consummate mindfulness practitioner myself, I, I still notice that when I'm trying to work through a particular issue or conversation or emotion or relationship dynamic, how easy it is to escape or how I, I've, I've found that my mind to some extent is hooked on trying to find the, the exit door to a distraction in yeah. that, and that that's yeah. the power of our attention. That's problem solving. That's creativity. Oh, yeah. Yes. Can I map that to the to neuroscience right now? Yes. Yep. Okay. So a couple of things that are happening. You remember earlier in the conversation, I said the brain loves to conserve energy. You know, for for its purposes. It's like, hey, don't do that deep problem solving right now because a saber toothed tiger might jump out right behind that you know parking meter right there and attack you, and you might need that energy to run. So they left to itself. The brain likes to fire the familiar modules and keep doing things sort of the same way that they've always been done, even if those ways aren't really serving us with our highest intention for ourselves. And so, you know, this is where what I call re-mindfulness. You know, I, people go, what's your mindfulness practice? Something like that. It's re-mindfulness. It's a process of forgetting pretty much as a constant the things that really are our highest intention. And so I love the relationship and almost the wordplay between the word intention and attention. So it takes a lot of intention to focus our attention. And so part of my remindfulness practice at moments like that is coming back to really that intentionality. What do I really want from this? And it's, it's been a fascinating thing to return to the workforce after many years away. Because I will tell you in the, you know, eight and a half months that I've been at LucidWorks, it's been just a, a, a joyful and incredibly satisfying experience uh, that is only matched by the amount of very hard and committed work. <laughs> you know, I've, I've made a huge commitment to this because, you know, it's, it's kind of, I believe so much in what we are capable of creating if we work together in these ways. But there have been days when I've gone home feeling very stressed and said, wow, this is how most workers are probably feeling most days. And that seems really hard to me. And mind you, when you feel like that, it takes extra effort to come back to your intentionality. Your body and your brain are depleted and they don't want to put the energy toward the intention, and it makes it so easy to simply let the things that easily grab your attention to simply come in and go like, oh gosh, just let me drop into this. Yeah. I'm curious what practices you use in, in your own life to support you in being that intentional and, and focusing your attention and and being able to be a practitioner of a lot of the things that you are working on? Well, I could tell you all kinds of things right now, Spencer, and I would probably expose myself as at least a part-time hypocrite. (laughs) I have been intermittent with all of these really great practices that we're supposed to do to make our lives better and, you know, sort of balance things and be mindful. 
I'm back home today after a two-week business trip. You know, the place that I'm sitting right now, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be cleaned up and put away. My suitcase is still there, so I can't say, you know, oh, I live a Marie Kondo life. And, you know, I only have things <laughs> around me that spark joy. <laughs> no, right now, my laundry basket isn't sparking a whole lot of joy. You know, it's pretty real. Life is real when we're working, right? And I think of people who have maybe children and the amount of work and, you know, pressure and stuff and the amount of really just sort of inherent disorder that modern life delivers to us. I'm a pretty good meditator. There are times when I lapse. I'm a pretty good exerciser. Exercise is really, really important to me. Travel sometimes compromises it. Work sometimes compromises it. Here's the thing, though, and I, I don't want to say this is a way of, you know, sort of saying, great, now throw up your hands and what do you do? I have a framework for life that has three kind of chapters in it. One of them is the brain set, brain set, you know, just the way the brain is. One is the mindset. What is the skill set? Here's what we know about the brain. I said earlier, your brain will do more of whatever it's doing right now, you know, as it fires at wires. So I know that the brain is plastic. Every brain out there, you know, we have neuroplasticity. Every brain can change. I often say you have to train your brain like you train a puppy. You know, you reward it for the things it does well and kind of try to do less of the things that you don't like that it's doing. And that's not going to change your entire brain. But, you know, as I often say, 5 or 10% changes can be huge. So brain sets, the, the way my brain fires modules and runs routines based on past behaviors, past, you know, the mindsets and so forth. That brings us to the next one, mindsets. And mindsets have a lot to do with intentionality. How are we trying to change? What do we want? Where are we going? Sort of this, this sort of vision that we're moving toward. And then skill sets. Skill sets are the small practices, little behavioral changes that over time, and they reflect the mindsets. They're intentional and deliberate. And over time, because your brain will do more of whatever it's doing right now, they change your brain sets. So I will say over the last years, and I would say 10, 12, 15 years, small skill set practices based on mindsets, this mindset of saying, I really believe there's something more for me out there. I know that I'm happiest when I'm working with other people or when I'm contributing this type of work or when I'm learning something or practicing something that helps me grow. These, I, I can absolutely say, have changed my brain. We know that scientifically, but I also know it in my own experience. And so I have a lot of trust in small changes leading to good, if applied over time. And that's actually a very encouraging message because I know many people out there feel overwhelmed by all of the things that sort of you know, hit in modern life. Okay, I'd say choose one or two things. And do it as much as you can. And even if that's journaling, finding reflective time, even if it's saying I'm going to take 15 minutes every day, and I'm not joking when I say this, simply to look at something in nature, those 15 minutes are going to allow your brain to integrate and catch up with itself. It's sort of spacing out, just sort of not really thinking, just sort of enjoying allow the brain to kind of catch up with itself in, in integration. And uh, 15 minutes is probably not enough, but heck, it's better than nothing. So just small practices that feel good to you and being committed to those, you know, reminding yourself to do them, those, mm. those actually do change us over time. One thing I do when I'm traveling is I always make time to go out and 
even if I'm in a, you know, I was in a city yesterday where this was really hard to do, but try to look at something in nature. You know, we, we come from nature. We, it's in our DNA, you know, we evolved to fill a niche in, you know, sort of the world around us. It was in a, a natural setting. And the brain has a very, very interesting response when it looks at, at patterns of nature, when it looks at new growth, when it looks at, you know, even, you know, animals in nature. These are very, these, these ground our brains in very interesting ways. There's also meditation. There's also yoga. There's journaling. There's art, self-expression. There's making eye contact with people we really care about. There's, as you opened up in this call, there's just being present, being in the moment. Coming back to these more timeless practices really help us connect with who we are, who we more deeply are in a different way. Mm. There's so many There's so many practices there. And, and one of the... Yeah. And one of the um, Part of the nugget that I took away there is something as well that I'm trying to do more of, which a lot of people talk about meditation, right? And meditation is great, obviously. But part of what you were saying is it's actually just taking time for contemplation. So contemplation, being out in nature, contemplation is another state outside of the kind of like active entertainment. Wonderful. Yes. Right. And, and what I would call mindful contemplation, you know, there is such a burden now, you know, we're so busy that when we are doing something, we multitask, we try to do it as fast as we can. I, I guess you've brought me to a, a better answer than I gave for the question, the second to last question. And that is, I think a big part of my practice is slowing down, slowing down and avoiding that all too common trap that frenzy of being busy. And so maybe as I look at, you know, my post-travel room and see, okay, you know, this weekend there are going to be a few things to set into order. I'm not adding stress to them and saying, okay, while I'm having this conversation with Spencer, I should be unpacking my suitcase. Why am I not busy? (laughs) And so, yes, contemplation and directed or mindful contemplation, it's a form of cognitive nourishment that we are, we're absolutely, you know, starving for right now. And however we find it, that that's the sort of slowing down and reflective practices. And they're, they're so important. They're not really valued, are they? They're kind of, I guess, because they're not productive. We feel like we've, we have, you know, it's an old cliche. We feel like we're human, human doings rather than human beings. We get so much reward for what we do. And yet we pay a price for it in a way. Yeah, well, it goes all the way even to how we measure the economy, right? GDP, oh, yeah. GDP is only, it's only based on you know, economic output versus value addition and measure, being able to measure, or value addition, I should say, is only being measured based on you know, an, an economic measure versus, right. versus something else. And, That's right. Uh, it's, here's, the, here's the point that comes from that. I think over centuries, but very much even in my life, I've seen us become increasingly directed towards the things we can unambiguously prove as, as metrics of success rather than more of the qualitative experience that feels satisfying, that feels like, you know, what is what really matters. So 
if we look at, for example, you mentioned the GDP, you know, if we're saying, okay, we have the absolute proof that this worked because it grew 4.3% over the last year. Okay, it worked on that vector, but we have to ask really as human beings, what are we optimizing for? What are we really optimizing for? An external proof or an internal experience? I feel that's a whole other podcast episode in and of itself, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, there, there's there's several here. Uh, the future of economics, <laughs> the future of the future of work, the future of our civilization. Ellen, as we start to wrap up here, I'm curious if there's anything else that has come up for you over the course of the conversation that you want to share. Yes, yes, there has been. And so thank you for asking. You know, so many of the things that we talk about in conversations like this, we, we you know, often you hear the word dehumanizing. It's not so hard to think of the, the ways that that might come up in a conversation about the workplace or about, you know, bigger factors in the world or the, the way we're living, right? It's not a, it's a word you hear, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I love this word, rehumanizing, and really understanding what it means to be a human on a biological level, on a spiritual level, and on a social level. And we're all aching to rehumanize, you know, to, and by the way, learning to be human, that's something that, you know, different cultures and societies have spent, you know, thousands and thousands of years trying to figure out it. I think really understanding what this experience is about is something that's driven humans forward for, for you know, just time immemorial. But what I would love for people to take away from the conversation is to think, you know, if they feel that they are in a situation in their work or in the world or whatever that feels dehumanizing, well, what does that mean? And then what might be possible? in rehumanizing, really connecting spiritually or even, you know, biologically with who we really are. And that that word, you know, sort of this idea of reclaiming what it means to be human and also to be humans in part of a complex system that is affected by everything we do and where everything that happens affects us. We're in a system. What does rehumanizing in these very meaningful you know, intentional ways, potentially offer us as a people and really as participants in greater systems, it might help us get more of what is really on our meta-heroic journey of, you know, of, of being a force of good. And that thought is on my mind a lot and probably is the fuel cell of pretty much everything I do. So I feel very grateful and appreciative of being able to share it reflect on it with you a little bit here. Absolutely. This has been such a great conversation and yeah, rehumanization is I think also a key, key, key differentiator that people and businesses will have going forward is the, the businesses that can create a really human experience for their customers, for their people that work there will ultimately be the ones that really stand out and last and generate loyalty and, yeah. um, and outsized re- returns. And I think the time will just tell, right? And I, I've got to imagine there's all, you know, already the ability to extract that kind of data to, to tie it back to the bottom line. But again, you know, it's, it's so funny because it, it, it also goes to that question of what are we optimizing for? Are we optimizing for the most profitable companies and over what time horizon and, and to what end? 
But Ellen, we need to <laughs> we need to wrap up here. Ellen, what is the best way for people to um, follow your work or get in touch with you? Oh, well, thank you for asking. You know, a couple of years ago, I probably had a better answer to that question than I do now. <laughs> I am spending a little bit less time on Twitter than I used to, but I do have a Twitter handle. It's a funny word. It's Cheptoom, C-H-E-P, and then the, the number two, and then an M will pop up if you put that into Twitter. I do think the the book, the, the Happiness Hack, a book that I published a little more than a year ago, is a good way to get sort of grounded in some of these ideas from a, a neuroscience perspective and also a little bit from a psychological one. And then I am working on another book right now that I'm the working title is Reset, Reclaiming Hope, Happiness, and Humanity in Times of Change. So that I have a, a website and a, a form on that. And right now I'm pretty committed to my work at Lucid Works. And you know, at some point in the future I will take all that I'm learning here and apply it, you know, at some future point to the next chapter. And so I'll be back. <laughs> I guess that's not a very good answer, but um, try to find me anyway, and I'll 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 be there. I promise you, I'll find a way to be there. Sounds great. We'll put Ellen. Uh, it's ellenlens.com, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. And Ellen, thank you so so much for joining us. Thank you, Spencer. Really enjoyed the conversation and all you brought to it. Thank you.